0: So I want to talk to you this morning. Uh, this subject that we're dealing with is from Romans chapter six. The theme that we've been going on in Romans was practicing the new you, and the baptism that, or the baptisms that we had last Sunday, were all part of that practicing the new you. And this sermon continues that theme. And uh the title of the sermon, if you have your bulletin, I'm uh, wait a minute, that may be the Lord calling. I don't want to miss it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> well, we'll repent. Repent take a moment and repent if you hung up on the Lord. Okay. The the title for the sermon is Gotta Serve Somebody. Now How many of you have ever heard of Bob Dylan? Uh, Well, Bob Dylan is one of America's greatest songwriters. Um, And he wrote a song. Uh, He grew up Jewish. And then he became a rock star slash folk singer. And then much later in life, he became a Christian. You may not know that, but he gave his life to Christ. And he wrote many songs that grew out of his faith. And the one that I'm about to talk about, Gotta Serve Somebody, is one of those songs. Interestingly, he has just re-released that album. It's the first time he he himself has ever re-released an album. He changed the music, but none of the words. And there was an intense backlash in the music industry that he wrote a song that was so Christ-centric. So we're going to show, uh, uh, we're going to play part of the song. And the lyrics, you can follow along, because they just fit our sermon. Before we do that, I'm going to read the passage, and you'll see why this song is so relevant. You have it in your bulletin, if you open it up, Romans 6, verses 15 through 19. It says, oh, and... uh, Paul is talking to the Romans about the new you and about the gift of grace and he's answering a question with these words what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace by no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin which leads to death For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now slavery is terrible. It is morally reprehensible. Yet here is Paul exhorting the Romans to understand that there's a bad form of slavery and a good form of slavery. And you have to be thinking, is Paul crazy? Slavery in any form is reprehensible. But here Paul is telling us to be a certain kind of slave. And Paul does mean slave. The word that's translated slave, doulos in the Greek, does not mean employee, worker, or laborer, it means slave. Um, Now Paul says everyone is a slave. So the issue is not whether or not you are a slave. The issue from Paul's point of view is to whom you serve as a slave. So it's important to be the right kind of slave. So with that, we're going to play part of Bob Dylan's song that grew out of this passage Gotta serve somebody, you'll hear the music and you'll see the lyrics on the slides. It's all right to tap your foot. those lyrics great? Well, the whole song is about six minutes and you gotta download it on Apple, iTunes, or pick up the words on Google, they're fantastic. So Paul is here talking about two types of slavery and they're radically different. And Paul even goes to, so far as to say you have to be set free from one type of slavery in order to enjoy the benefits of the other type of slavery. And so I'm gonna have them put up, as you see, um, a, a slide that shows the contrast between the two types of slavery. And I'm gonna just walk through some of the differences. And as you can see, there's one, the slavery that results from sin, and the other, the slavery that results from righteousness. And so the first contrast between the two types of slavery is that the slavery from sin forces obedience. It's not like you have a choice. Uh, you may have a choice, but sin operates in the life so much that it takes away the ability to choose. In contrast, the slavery of righteousness inspires obedience the next contrast is that this slavery under sin is done with a whip it is brutal it's unrelenting and it's merciless but the slavery of righteousness is obedience by the compulsion of love third contrast The uh, slavery from sin is involuntary submission. It's the person who says, I don't want to drink, but they drink. I don't want to watch those images on my computer, but we hit the key. I don't want to do drugs anymore, and yet first temptation, and we succumb. In contrast, the slavery that comes from righteousness is voluntary it is done out of a heart's desire to obey. Next contrast. The slavery that comes from sin drives us away from God. It isolates us. It not only drives us away from God, but in driving us away from God, it drives us away from others. We begin to isolate ourselves from anybody who reminds us of God. In contrast, the righteousness that um, is, the slavery that comes from righteousness um, results from a relationship with God and it deepens that relationship with God. And because it deepens the relationship with God, it deepens our relationship with others. Whereas the one drives us out of community, this righteousness obedience drives us into community. The one isolation, the other community. Next slide. The slavery of sin produces undesirable consequences. Whereas the slavery from righteousness produces desirable consequences. So uh, let me give you just um, well, I'll come to that. So the things that sin compels us to do are the very things that disgust us, that weaken us, that make us think, man, I'm a lousy person. I keep doing this. I don't want to do this. And yet we do it. And the the slavery that comes from righteousness produces consequences about which we are so grateful. I'm so happy this has happened. Next contrast. The slavery from sin means that we are not consciously choosing to be a slave. Whatever choice we had in the matter at the outset is now gone. And we are under the dominion of a master who is merciless, whose only goal is to shrink us to nothing. In contrast, the slavery that comes from righteousness is what we consciously choose. We want to be this kind of slave. In fact, you could say that the whole process of Christian growth is to choose to be increasingly submitted to the will of God as expressed in his word. Baptism, for example, is an informed decision Molly and the other five men and women who were baptized on Sunday made a deliberate, knowing decision to be baptized. We didn't grab them and turn a water hose on them. They came and said, dunk us in the bay. Now, this sin has undesirable consequences. And as Paul says, one of the worst consequences of sin is more sin. It's called habituation. Uh, Paul writes in verse 19, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. It's the ever-weakening ability to say no to sin. So that, that first drink, leads to a second drink which leads to a third drink and so on until you start out seemingly under control and to a point where you are no longer under control. So I'll ask the ladies a question. What is the difference between a guy so repulsive You wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. And a guy who is as charming, seductive, and alluring as James Bond. You know the difference? Three drinks. Three drinks. Uh, Willie Nelson has a song, a country western song, and it has this refrain. I went to bed at two with a 10 and woke up at 10 with a two. <laughs> Sin drives us down lanes that we don't want to go. Um, and it starts out with just one until that one infrequent use becomes occasional use, becomes frequent use becomes habitual, becomes slavery. And there's no bright line warning us where we cross over. And this habituation can take place over a week, a month, a year. It's, and you know the, the social science now teaches that one of the dangers of drug use is that it takes more and greater drugs to produce the same level of high. When I was in college, which, and yes, we did have flushing toilets when I was in college. They had just been introduced. I started, now I don't know the modern lingo, so forgive me with an old man's lingo. I started with a joint, a stick of marijuana. You with me? And it grew slowly until I began doing just about everything. And one day I threw a party in my apartment. And this is before I met my wife. And we had everything that you could purchase on the market. And I woke up in the morning Uh, It was my own apartment, I had no roommate. And my room looked filthy and smelled foul. And I remember lying in bed thinking, my goodness, my mind must look like this. And I got up and I furiously cleaned that room. I opened up all the windows, and this is in New Hampshire, so Spring in New Hampshire is still 35, 40 degrees. And I let all that wind blow through, and I mopped and scrubbed until my room was spotless. And then I showered. I needed to get all that stuff out. And I even went to the store to get some floral spray. That's how desperate I was to get that smell out of my room. And I had a friend come by who had been there the night before named Crump. And uh, Crump, through God's intuition, he wasn't a believer just like I wasn't. I didn't realize God was working in my life, but he was. He was pursuing me even as I was running in the opposite direction. And Trump offered me a stick of marijuana, and I told him, no, I don't want any. And I didn't want to tell him that all desire for drugs had left me when I saw my room. Now that was God, that wasn't me. And Trump Crump looked at me and he said, you've stopped haven't you? And he, my nickname was Fast Willie, don't inquire. <laughs> and I'm probably revealing too much. But he said, uh, Willie, have you given it up? And I was embarrassed to say no because that's, you know that's what cool guys did it college and I kind of in, in an embarrassed way hung my head and said yeah I, I, I'm not doing it anymore and he, his answer was really revealing he said Willie really, I wish I could I did not know that God was working in my life to turn me away from those things that were bringing me down now these are the undesirable consequences of sin just to feel but you gotta understand the path, where you start and where it ends up. And obeying God, in contrast, has these great and desirable consequences. William Barclay was, is a, or was, a famous Scottish theologian, and he wrote this. A Christian is a person who has given complete control of his life to Christ holding nothing back. No man or woman who has done that can ever think of using grace as an excuse for sin. Another great theologian, John Calvin, wrote these words. Without grace, the whole human race is held captive under the dominion of sin but that the kingdom of sin comes to an end as soon as grace puts forth its power. Now, we are free. When when a person gives his or her life to Christ, we become free from sin in four ways. I'm going to describe these four ways, but I don't want you to think that if you don't evidence all of this at one time in gratefulness that you are not a believer. If you're like me, and pray to God, you're not. But if you are like me, you have ups and downs. Some days when you're really strong in the Lord and other days when you're weak. But the first way that we're free from sin is that we're free from the eternal penalty for sin. Christ has borne that penalty for us. Nothing we do can separate us from God or from his love. Christ has sealed that relationship by his death on the cross. Second form of freedom. We are free from the inevitability of sin, the habituation of sin. That is, we are free from the power of sin that sucks us in it's like the dust balls around we have two dogs and the hair just kind of falls off especially now that it's summer and my wife and I share the vacuuming duties which means I vacuum when I can't run away in time (laughs) so when that suction gets close to a clump you don't have to be right on it it just sucks it right in and that's the power of sin. But when Christ comes, that power, that, that ability to just suck us in is weakened to the point that it is taken away. Is that an immediate process? Sometimes it is on certain things like me and drug use. That was in the spring of 1969. I've never touched a drug, never thought about it since then. But sometimes it's more gradual. And sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. So the, th- the third form of freedom, oh, and then the second form where we're free from the inevitability of sin, it's habit-forming power. Christ is putting in our hearts right desires. He's causing us to want things that previously we did not want and causing us to not want things we previously craved. The third form of freedom is the freedom to believe God and trust him. Before I was an unbeliever, I thought I was free, but I was not free to believe God. And the things that I heard about God just made no sense to me. But once I became free, once I became a follower of Christ, the things that I couldn't believe or understand at first I gradually, with time, came to understand and believe. Jesus says in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved and not works. We are saved by grace, not works. And this faith to believe is itself the gift of God. God gives us freely the gift to believe him. And the fourth and final freedom that I'm going to talk about is we are free to experience God in ever new and fascinating ways. So, although we will dwell with God for an eternity, we will never reach the boundaries of his personality. We will never say about some truth or aspect of God, oh, I I knew that, I got that, this is old stuff. We are forever discovering. We will see new aspects of the beauty and majesty and glory and power of God. We will never be bored. It will always be something new. We will always be discovering and rejoicing. So this ability to experience God new in newer ways, share with you a little story from my own life. I was living in San Diego, Dana and I married. She put me through law school. I'm working at a law firm. We have two kids and everything is going beautifully. But I feel something lacking in my life and I cannot put my finger on it. And one day Dana and the boys are out shopping and I'm walking through the house and the next thing I know I'm on my knees praying. And I pray this. God, I don't even know if you exist, but I do know I don't like to go to church, I don't like to read the Bible, I don't like to sing hymns, and I don't like to hang with Christians. But that's true. This is a quote. But I do love to play squash. If you are who you say you are, make me love these things more than I love to play squash. And God answered that prayer two weeks later. Um, Now, one of the things about the freedom we enjoy in Christ is the realization of what that freedom cost Christ, who himself voluntarily became a slave for our salvation. So let me read a bit from Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul writes, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, and what that means is, He didn't zealously hold on to his divinity. He let it go so that he could be crucified. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' obedience was perfect. It was passionate. It was sincere. And it was voluntary. That's what it means he did not hold on to his Godhead, which he could have at any point and said, wait a minute. I know Bill McCure and I've looked down through time. I'm not doing this for him. And he would have been perfectly within his rights as God to do so. But instead he submitted to the Father's will for me and died on the cross for me. So Jesus voluntarily became a slave in at least two ways. The first way, he voluntarily did everything the father directed him to do. So on the eve of his crucifixion, when he knelt down in the garden and said, is there any way that this cup might pass? In fact, I have to tell you, that's how I got saved. It was... 2.30 2.30 on a Sunday morning when God had wakened me up, awakened me at 2.15 for some reason. I didn't know God, I was not his friend, but I knew God had awakened me. And I, he told me to do something, I won't go into the details, and I'm sitting there at a, like a park bench table, which was our breakfast table, and the wall was four feet away And God had told me to write a letter to a friend named Steve Carlson. I didn't have anything to write. And so, impertinently, I said to God, if you want me to write Steve Carlson, you're going to have to tell me what to say. And as soon as I said that, the wall in front of me dissolved away. We would call it a flat screen TV today. That's just what it looked like. It was night. It was in the mountains, but this was a flat clearing. And this man was kneeling in the middle of the darkness with sweat and blood all over his face and forehead. And in my spirit, I realized this is Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane. And he had just said something, but I couldn't hear what he had said. But this voice above him in response said, Certainly, my son, you do not have to die on the cross. But I want you to know that 1,947 years from now, a young child named Bill McCurran will be born. If you do not die on the cross, he will never know me. But if you do die on the cross, he might, the word was might, come to know me. And with that much hesitation, Jesus said, that's enough. I'll go. That was the first time I ever realized I was a sinner. I fell off the chair, sobbing out loud, afraid that my wife would awaken. I grabbed paper towels off the uh, table and stuffed them in my mouth to muffle the sound. I knew for the first time that I was a horrible sinner. That my sins had separated me from God. There was nothing I could do to bridge that gap my sins had created. Jesus had to do it for me. And when I realized, I just wept. I just wept. And my body shook. I fell off the bench onto the floor. And I wept for 20 minutes. And then finally I stopped crying, I was hacking. And I felt like God had gone in and taken my heart and just scrubbed it, scrubbed it. And when I got up, I knew, somehow knew that I was saved. I didn't, this is like 1978. I, I, if I had heard the phrase born again, I don't ever remember it but I knew that I was a new person. Jesus voluntarily died on the cross for that. A wretched sinner, not just a sinner then, a sinner now. And he did it voluntarily, became a slave voluntarily so that I could be free. The second way he became a slave is that he submitted himself not just to the Father's will, but to men. And let men do to him whatever they pleased. So, you will recall when he was being questioned before the Sanhedrin, despite all the questioning, he said nothing. Until the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Which is a way of saying, you're right. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. So to die on the cross was the, uh, to be hung on a tree, hanged on a tree, was for the Jewish mind the worst death possible because it meant that you were separate from God and separate from the community. You were the vilest of sinners. So it was a special punishment only reserved for certain crimes. They spit in his face within any culture, but particularly the Eastern culture, a horrible humiliation. But then they slapped him. Which is an even worse humiliation. Jesus said to Pilate, Don't you know that I can call forth right now seven legions of, twelve legions of angels, and they would be here to free me? He set aside that power and submitted himself to the abuse of men so that he could make slaves free. Jesus' perfect obedience was motivated purely by love, love for the Father, and love for us. So this begs the question, how do we put this knowledge into practice? What what practical use does it mean for my life and what I'm struggling with now? First, we need to understand that obedience is not works. It's not legalism. Obedience is simply obedience. It is growing in the understanding and experience of the infilling of Christ's righteousness through the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. We have to change the way we think. As Paul wrote in this very passage, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves have become obedient from the heart. That is, the way you thought about things is now radically different. Let me give you an example. Some of you know my wife. I have a really foxy wife. And I am faithful to Dana. My faithfulness is not the result of legalism, it is not the results of works. It is a recognition of the incredible blessing she is to me, and I'm determined, as far as is humanly po- possible for me to do, not to screw this up. We need to take control of our thought lives. James Boyce, a wonderful Presbyterian theologian, now with the Lord, wrote. We do what we do because we believe what we believe. All sin starts with our thought life. And all freedom from sin, that is righteousness, starts with our thought life. Consciously bring our thoughts into submission to Christ by asking the Holy Spirit to guide and govern our thought life. As you go through this week, ask the Holy Spirit for freedom from a particular sin. Then bombard that with prayer and thanksgiving. One example. My wife used to be a heavy smoker. I tried everything to get her to stop smoking she knew she didn't smoke shouldn't smoke she knew it was a weakness in her mind it was a sin but she felt trapped i tried to bribe her with money honey if you quit i'll you know buy you this that didn't work i tried the sympathy ploy babe what happens if you die it's going to be me and the kids without you that would be terrible that didn't work and one day she pulled out a cigarette and i was about to lecture her and the god said to me be quiet. I'm. I'm be quiet. I, we were in the kitchen and he said, just pray. Every day I prayed this prayer God, make Dana rather eat monkey dung than smoke a cigarette. Isn't that a deeply spiritual prayer? Can't you see that written in the annals of heaven? I prayed that every day, make, God, make Dana rather eat monkey dung than smoke a cigarette. And I prayed this every day for eight months. And then one day Dana came to me and said, you haven't noticed, have And I said, what? She said, I haven't smoked a cigarette for two weeks. And I realized, oh my goodness, so I'm praying for God to work, and what? He's already worked, but I was so blind I couldn't see it. I know that never happens to you, but I'm particularly stupid. It happens to me. And one day, Dana said to me, and this was months later, or maybe a year after she stopped smoking, she said, and I never told her about my prayer because God told me to be quiet. So I never said anything. And one day she said to me, I was going to buy a cigarette, I almost broke down, and I thought, man, I'd rather eat monkey dung than smoke a cigarette. I kid you not. And that is when I told her about the prayer. Um, Bombard the throne of grace with the sin that so easily besets us. And yes, we're going to take two steps forward and one step back. And sometimes it's going to seem like we're not making any progress at all. And sometimes when Satan hears us pray, he doubles his efforts to keep us enslaved. The thing becomes not alluring but doubly alluring. Persist in God. Let's pray.